Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 5. That's where we are this morning as we continue our series, Always Near. Jesus is always near to us, even when sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Here's the key concept this morning. Jesus is near the needy, near the needy. John chapter 5, that's the passage we'll look at. But today I want to start with a a modern-day parable, so to speak. It's a story of a wealthy man named Tom who was gravely ill. And he knew he was gravely ill. He knew he was near death. And so he decided to do something kind of unusual with his wealth. He decided to give it away to people in need, and he went about it this way. He went into the city streets, and he encountered those who are homeless and needy. The first one was a homeless man, hungry and lying on the sidewalk, wrapped in rags, And he said to that man, listen, this is a bank card. In this bank card, you have access to $10 million in a bank account. And you can make a withdrawal for for your needs each and every day. And all I ask is, as you do that, also help others out to the best that you can. And the man looked up at Tom from his position on the sidewalk there. And he thought to himself, this man is out of his mind. This card is worthless, and he ripped it up and he threw it away. Tom then went to a poor woman in an equally bad situation. She took the card with thanks, and did, but, but didn't go to the bank right away with it. And as the days went by, she forgot about that card. She was distracted in her problems, and soon it was lost. After that, Tom came to another man who gratefully accepted the card, kept it safe in his pocket, knew just where it was, and went around telling everyone, I'm rich, I'm rich, I have everything that I need. But he never used the card. So he did not change his life. He did not improve his situation. He still lived on the streets. He still dressed in rags. And soon no one believed him. Finally, a poor woman took the card from Tom. And she dared to go down to the bank and ask for what she thought was maybe an unbelievable amount of money. She said, could I take out $500? The teller at the bank was a friend of Tom's, and he knew his plan. He knew this situation. And he looked at her intently in the eyes, and he said, is that really all that you need? And so with that encouragement, she said, well, could you give me $5,000? And with that money, she went and she rented a small apartment. She took a badly needed bath. She bought some new clothes for herself. And each following day, she made a withdrawal from the bank. And soon she was meeting her needs and sharing with others, blessing others with her fortune. And why would I tell you this story? Because that's what Jesus longs to do for us. He longs to meet us where we are and bring us to where we need to be by His power and His mercy. But we need to be receiving that power and mercy. We need to be willing to say yes to that power and mercy. And in the story we're going to look at today, Jesus meets a man greatly in need right where he is and gives power and mercy So let's pick up the story. John chapter 5, we'll start the reading in verse 1. It says this, Sometime later Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. 
Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Jesus is once again in Jerusalem and he goes down to a pool named Bethesda, which we can still visit these days. The name means house of mercy. And he went there to that pool of Bethesda because he knew there he would find the needy. And why were the needy there? Why did they congregate around the pool of Bethesda? They did that based on a rumor. A rumor brought them there. You see, underneath the pool of Bethesda, there is a subterranean stream. And occasionally, that subterranean stream releases bubbles, and it bubbles to the top of the pool. And an urban legend had grown up about this, these bubbles. And the legend said that really this was an angel stirring up the waters, and that the angel would heal the first person who got into the water after the bubbles had risen to the surface. That was the rumor that brought them there. So let me take you to your Bible once again and ask you this question. In the text of your Bible, do you have verse 4? If you have a modern-day translation, verse 4 is either in brackets or it's in the margins of your Bible because there it explains this rumor that the movement of the waters that was attributed to an angel now, the reason you don't have verse 4 in the text of your Bibles, or at least you have it bracketed in the text if you have a modern translation, is because that is what scholars call a gloss. I'm taking you back to the idea of textual analysis. We talked about this some months ago. A gloss is a uh, a phrase or a sentence that when the copyists were copying the manuscripts by hand, carefully by hand, at one point somebody uh, inserted by way of commentary, probably in the margin, verse 4, which reads, from time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. Okay? That was meant to be an, uh, 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 explaining the reason why these people came to Bethesda. That was a rumor. It wasn't, it's not really teaching that that actually happened, but that's what brought the people there. Now, the next copyist, or a few down the line, saw that in the margins and said to themselves, oh, my word, that should be in the text. He forgot that. And so they put it in the text. And there's a line of manuscript copies that include the wording of verse 4. But that's not, there's not the best manuscripts that we have. In fact, we can trace that mistake back. It, it shouldn't be there because the Bible isn't teaching us that the, this, this angel actually did that. But it does give us insight into what brought the needy to that place. It was this rumor. And when you are hurting, when you are needy, when you are ill, and you seek a solution, you will latch on to the slightest glimmer of hope. Maybe I'll go down to the pool. We've experienced that, right? Rumors. There was a lot of rumors about COVID-19. 
We still don't understand completely how it started, where it got started, what started it all, but there are a lot of rumors out there about that. Go back further in history to 1665 when millions in Europe died because of the Black Plague. There were all kinds of rumors about what caused that and, and, and how it should be handled. And currently at that time, uh, back in those days, one of the strong rumors was that you get the Black Plague from breathing in polluted air. And in those days, they associated clean air with good aromas. So people took to carrying flower petals in their pockets and breathing through the flower petals. They took to walking around rose beds because of the aroma of the roses they thought was breathing in, in a pure air. Others felt that it was wise to clear the lungs so they would sniff in ashes, making themselves sneeze to get out the bad air to ward off the black plague. The problem was it had nothing to do with the air. It was about fleas on diseased rats that infested the cities. But along with that rumor came a little rhyme, and the rhyme we still know today. Ring around the roses, a pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. That rhyme was said by the men who picked up the dead bodies in the streets of the European cities. Rumors are powerful. Rumors can make a difference. It stuck with us. As I said, the Bible's not teaching that the pool had any real healing powers. That was a, super, a superstition. Because, but because of that rumor, the hurting went to the pool. And because the hurting went to the pool, Jesus went to the pool. Because Jesus is near to the needy. He's drawn to the hurting, even if they are misled. And when Jesus comes next to that pool... He doesn't judge them. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't say, listen, you people, you've got this all wrong. There's no angel stirring the waters. Cut it out. He doesn't say that. No, He goes to help them. And He doesn't stay away from the pool. He doesn't say to Himself and to His closest followers, listen, if only these people would come to my meetings, right? I'm, I'm here in the temple courts. Why don't they exert some effort, come to my meetings, and then everything will be fine. No, no, He doesn't do that. He goes to them. And when he goes to them, he gets right down to the matter with one individual. Do you want to get well? This one man, and we never learn his name, but we know one glaring fact about him. We know that he's stuck in a place in life that no one would want to be stuck in. He lays on his mat under the porticos, the shelter from the, the hot sun, the shade there, but he is absolutely stuck. He is disabled, he is desperate, and he's been there for a long period of time, invalid for 38 years, who knows how long laying here. And Jesus singles this man out. Why? I don't know. We can speculate. Maybe he was the worst case there. But he had no friends. He had no help. He had no healing. He had nowhere else to go. You see, Bethesda, the place of the rumor, had become his permanent address. There he was. And Jesus asks him a question, and underneath the question, he's really probing, fighting some battles there. And the first battle is the battle against defeatism. Verse 6, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Understanding the rumor, you, you understand his point of view here. Jesus' question sounds silly. Do you want to get well? But he's, but he's 
fighting a battle against defeatism and surrender? Is there still a spark of desire in you to get healed? Over the course of the years, maybe it would be easy just to give in to the fact that I'm never going to get over this. I'm never going to get better than this. He must have had some hope, you say, because he stayed at the pool. But I think it's possible to go through the outside motions, but inside be wasting away. Inside to be immobilized by despair. And the word never, impossible, hangs over our head. And it starts at the level of the will. Do you want to get well? Are you willing to get well? And if you roll it forward, really, that's still Jesus' question to us on a spiritual level. Do you want to get spiritually well? Do you want to make it right with God? Or are you satisfied right where you are in your need and in your hopelessness just to try to do it yourself? Jesus asks this question of this man on a physical level. And notice the answer. It's not an answer to that question. It's the answer to the question, why are you not yet well? Well, because there's no one to help me in. That's why I'm not yet well. But that's not the question. The question is, do you want to get well? Are you defeated to the point where there's no desire anymore? And even though the man doesn't really answer that question, Jesus hears a glimmer of yes, I do want to get well. It's a small yes. It's just barely there. But it's enough for Jesus to work with because there's another battle that he has to fight. And the next battle is for something. It's the battle for belief. I mean, for obedience, excuse me. The battle for obedience. If you want to get well, I want you to do something. Verse 8, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. The desire was there. The hope was there. But now you're going to have to do something about it. You're going to have to obey. The power of God is, doesn't dispense with the effort of man. We have to do something when Jesus speaks. But notice with me, what Jesus says for him to do is the issue, isn't it? He's there because he can't walk. He's there because he's lame. And Jesus says, okay, fine, I want you to walk. Get up. He's ordering obedience to the very thing that this man says, I can't do that. Conversation goes like this. I can't walk. Okay, in that case, get up and walk. How does that make sense? It's as if Jesus is looking at him and saying, just do the impossible. Almost like, fly away like a bird. Just fly away. Kind of same, the same wavelength. And it brings a thought experiment to my mind for us. What if Jesus walked up and down the aisles of this church? What if Jesus was right here and he looked at you in the eyes and he said, fly away like a bird? Would you try? Or would you say, eh, that's impossible? Fly away like a bird. The thing is, we must try. When the master says something, we must try. And that's what this guy's situation is. It's impossible for me to walk. Walk. Stand up. You need to try. And the man does. And as he tries, the healing takes place. And he walks. Because there was another battle that Jesus was dealing with here too as He's dealing with this man. And that's the battle for belief. you got to believe 
that what I say you can do, you can do. Now maybe the man believed, would have believed because the famous Jesus of Nazareth was talking to him. Maybe the man would have believed because of his reputation and all the people talking about the miracles and how great it is and so forth and so on. But guess what? Later on in the passage, we find out this man did not know who Jesus was. He didn't know who was talking to him. He didn't believe because of his reputation or because the, the, the thing that he has heard about Jesus of Nazareth. He believed because there was something in the presence of the Lord. There was something in the word that he said, the way that he said it. There was something in his approach that caused him to say, after 38 years of not being able to use these legs, I'm going to try because this guy said try. And then Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk away. In other words, don't try to save your place. You're never going to need this place again. Take that nasty old mat and walk away with it. The impossible is made possible with Jesus. So, is there something in your life over which you have a title? Impossible. Impossible for me to quit smoking. Impossible for me to get off drugs. Impossible for me to get married at my age. Impossible for me to control my temper even though it's cost me so much. Impossible for me to forgive what he did and what she said. It's impossible for me to live sober. Impossible for me to be financially solvent. Impossible for me to get past grief and anger. And when we say those things, think those things, Jesus taps us on the shoulder and says, do you even want to get well? Is the desire there? Because when you want to get well, believe that with me all things are possible and obey. And so this man is healed. A very quiet miracle. There's not a lot of hoopla here. Jesus melts away into the crowd, and this man walks away carrying his mat. And then we see there's more to the story. There's a bigger battle going on than just this one man. Read on verse 9. It says, The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. Okay. Notice this. Jesus did not need to tell this man to pick up his mat. He would have been just as healed if that ratty old mat stayed right there. And Jesus did not need to heal this man on the Sabbath. He was not going anywhere. Right? So all of this is part of a larger strategy. There's another battle out there, but this battle is more like a war because it shows up over and over again in the life of Jesus. And it's the war against the religious nitpickers. Asking the man to pick up his mat and carry it, Jesus is poking a stick into the legalists of the Jewish leaders. Talk about nitpicking. Can you imagine seeing a man who has not walked in 38 years, walking down the street, healed and whole, and all you can say is, who told you you could carry your mat? Oh, please. Wow. Jesus is purposefully taking on that attitude. Jesus has no room for that attitude. If you can't rejoice with a man who has been healed, it's nothing more than a display of pride and superiority. And the echo of the voice of Jesus comes down from the first century to now and hits our ears, and He says, don't be like that. Don't be like that. 
Don't nitpick over every little thing. Don't criticize over every little thing. The legalists, they, they exercise their pride. But that's not the final word in this story because it ends kind of weird. Pick up the story in verse 14. Later, Jesus found him. This is the, the healed man. Jesus found him at the temple and said, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. <laughs> Jesus realizes that though he has healed this man's physical need, there's more to this man than just physical need. The spiritual need remained. The eternal need remained. He finds him in the temple. He seeks him out and he challenges him, oh, with blunt words, stop sinning. He doesn't say don't sin as if maybe he's not. No, no, he is. Stop sinning. And he says that to get this man's attention and the message is don't settle for just physical healing. You are more than just your physical body. You are an eternal being. Get healed spiritually and eternally. And that scene, that exchange, and Jesus' work on the Sabbath to defy the legalists brings about one of the clearest declarations from Christ that He is indeed God in the flesh. Pick it up in 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted Him. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. See, here's what's going to happen. Every once in a while, you're going to run into a person who's going to say this, you know, I think Jesus is great. I think he was a great guy. Too bad Christians have made him into something he never claimed to be. God in the flesh. Jesus never claimed that. That is wrong. That is a wrong statement. The Jewish leaders clearly saw that he was claiming to be with God and to be, be God. And because of that claim, that is the, the, what institutes the plan that will eventually lead him to the cross. You see, we don't misunderstand the dynamics of Jesus calling God my Father. We, we think of Father, Son as greater than, less than. That's not the equation here. When he calls God my Father, when we talk about Jesus as the only begotten Son of God, it's not greater than, less than, it's equal to. Jesus is saying the same stuff that's in him is in me. I'm his Son. The same substance in him is in me. I'm his Son. I'm equal to. The Jews get that. And thus the persecution. This is the crisis that becomes the obvious tension. And all wraps around the fact that Jesus is willing to defy the nitpickers while helping this man in need. This guy was defeated, stuck, wonderfully healed by Jesus. And it, asks, it causes me to ask, where, where in my life may I be defeated? Have I settled for negative narrative about myself? I'm never going to be amount to much. I'll never have victory over this area of sin. I'll never feel like I'm a part of God's plan. I'll never really have assurance of salvation. 
When these things crowd in on us and, and the defeat overwhelms us, Jesus says, do you want to get well? You can be well. It takes stepping out of what you have settled for and trying what you might think is impossible through my power, and nothing's impossible in my power. Or maybe what we need to learn from this lesson is to heed the stern warning against the legalistic mindset of pride. It has no place in the life of grace that you are called to as a follower of Jesus. You have received grace. Give grace to others. Or maybe the way we need to take this story is to ask the question, have I ever had that spiritual healing that Jesus challenges this man about? You see, Jesus' work on the cross made it possible for us to find healing of the Spirit, forgiveness within, and know that I'm in the family of God and His forever to find peace with God that I lack because of my own inner turmoil and my, my separation due to sin. All of that can be solved because of Jesus' work of spiritual healing. And He applies that to us when we reach out to Him in faith. And I wonder if you've done that, if you have assurance of that. Because if you haven't done that, that's the Holy Spirit touching your heart right now saying that's what you need to do whether you're here or you're watching online, that's what you need to do. It's a faith step. And if you want to take that faith step, I'll help you do it because that faith is put into words in a prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Because I'm going to pray. Maybe there's just one person here who says, I need to take that faith step. I'm going to ask you to pray the prayer that I pray, silently where you sit, maybe at home where you sit. doesn't need to be out loud. God will hear. Something like this. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want the spiritual healing that you will give me. I believe you, you died on the cross and paid the penalty of my sin. And I believe you rose again and can help me and heal me today. So help me to start over. Make me your child. Help me to walk with you. God, I don't know if anybody here prayed that prayer. I don't know if anybody watching online prayed that prayer. But I know that you wish us to. Those sorts of words saying yes to the forgiveness that you offer. And Lord, I pray that if anyone did pray that prayer today here or watching online, that right now they would have a sense of change within, that have a sense of assurance, that they would know that you are working in their heart and in their life. And as the days go forward, I pray that there would be a newness about who they are and what they do, the words they say, that they would have a craving for your word and to be with you in prayer with your people. And Lord, I pray that this be a new journey towards a new destination, and the destination is glory. And on the way, we get to serve you. So I pray that for all of us, really, that we sense that we're part of what you're doing in the world because of our faith relationship with you. Help us, we pray. For we ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.